Blog Talk Radio. Aloha, welcome to Talking Pictures. I'm your host, Paul Booth. Today we are going to interview, pardon, there's just a little bit of a mic situation going on, not that we can't with, and we are going to be interviewing Scott Rosenbaum, or no, sorry, Scott Birnbaum, that sounded so wrong, um, we can, let's see, one moment here. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about the blues, Hubert Sumlin, Muddy Waters, all kinds of good stuff. And the coolest part here is that we get to talk to this documentarian who made this wonderful film called Sidemen. And it is an awesome film, Sidemen. Road to Glory, and we apologize here. We understand that sometimes SHIT happens, so we do not mean to have any sort of disrespect to the film, the uh, director, or anyone that we had to have that like 30-second little glitch, but every filmmaker, every artist, everyone we've had on knows and again, we are totally respectful of our um, listeners. So again, we do apologize. But today's interview with Scott Birnbaum, director of Sidemen Road to Glory. I will now pull up the page. Um, this movie is, we're going to let Scott obviously tell us a lot more about it, but it's open in New York this week, Los Angeles next week. This is about how Sidemen helped shape rock and roll. And are you with us, Scott? Hey, I'm there. How are you, Paul? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for that, for understanding this little time thing and the, uh, time speaking with us. Uh, we welcome you to the show, Scott Birnbaum. This is the director of Sidemen Road to Glory. I have a synopsis here, but I enjoy these things. But I always love when we have who made the film on the phone and has hosts, we read a little email about it. So how would you like to tell us about what the film's about? Well, as we were talking briefly, it's, uh, it's really about these three incredible uh, blues men who all happened to be sidemen from Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. And uh, I had the good fortune to work with them on a, on a previous film. I'd cast them in a cameo role and uh, always revered uh, them for their role with Muddy and Wolf and uh, the blues for its role in shaping all the rock and roll that I grew up listening to. So when I got to meet them in person and spend some time with them on set, I just, absolutely fell in love with them and realized not um, not only am, am I in the midst of some uh, music royalty, but also guys that are part of American history. And uh, I just wanted to do something that would, would document who they were, who they represented, the music and, and the legacy they represented. And, and that's really where this started, you know, eight, nine years ago. 
Wow, that's an interesting. Uh, I love the fact uh, when we had when we were talking when you said eight years because this is stuff. The you know, first of all, for listeners, the film features uh, the the three main side men were Pine Top Perkins, Hubert Sumlin, who was of course the famous guitarist of Howlin' Wolf's band, Willie Big Eyes Smith. Uh, he's just so awesome on Hard Again. Um, Greg Allman, of course, who, I don't know, recently passed, like we were discussing, probably was two or three years ago, and I think it was last week. Joe Bonamassa, still out there kicking ass. Shemakia Copeland, keeping Coco Taylor alive. Uh, Warren Haynes, uh, Robbie Krieger of The Doors. Of course, Joe Perry, uh, one of the Toxic Twins with Mr. Steven Tyler. Bonnie Raitt, Kenny Wayne Shepard, uh, Susan Tetshi, and Derek Trucks. If you have not heard Derek Trucks, all due respect, I know it's called Tedeschi Trucks Band, but Derek Trucks is just, to me, is the master of the slide. I know he's got that Almond Brothers connection with his uncle. And then, of course, the late, very great Johnny Winter, who tears I Can't Be Satisfied a new a-hole on Hardigan. And <laughs> um, that's one of my favorite albums. I won't ruin what the film does, but, um, and then, uh, so yeah, so is there a, a, you said how much you revered them and obviously to spend this time, but is there a, is, it's like, is it just totally obvious the blues was your favorite music or was it kind of past you? I don't ask guests their age, but what's your, what yeah. is this no, not a, of a connection. I was born in 69. I had an uncle who went to Woodstock and uh, missed my, my birth, um, much to the chagrin of my grandparents. Um, but he was, you know, my touchstone for all that rock music and turned me on to the Stones and the band and the Who and Led Zeppelin and Blind Faith and Eric Clapton and all that great music as a kid. And it meant so much to me, but you know, you don't have a clue about this thing called the blues. And because he was such a fan of the band, when the the last waltz came out in the late seventies and I saw that film as a result of his turning me on to that, uh, seeing Muddy Waters come out there uh, with Bob Margolin and play Manish Boy it was a revelation and really that was kind of my touchstone for the awareness that there's a thing called the blues that really gave for us to rock and roll. And there's a deep history there. So it, it kind of started there. And like so many people and, and, and amazingly many of these rock musicians that I, I, you know, revered and got to interview for the film, like you said, uh, Greg Allman and um, Joe Perry, so many of them said that, they discovered the blues the way I discovered the blues through, you know, the, the British invasion, the, uh, the rock guys that in England who, you know, revered American roots music while it was really sort of languishing here. And, uh, like so many, including those musicians, you, you kind of work backwards. You discover, um, Eric Clapton's crossroads is really Robert Johnson. And there's this tremendous mythology there and it's just alluring. And I got drawn in and just fell in love with the blues, like so many people do. It, it's it is really interesting the way you just explain that, because and especially for those of you out there, the last waltz, check it out. It does go up and down on 
Netflix. Uh, it was filmed at Bill Graham's uh, Winterland. Of course, everybody knows Bill Graham for the Fillmore East and West, which the East is gone. The Fillmore West is still there. Go if you ever get the chance. I saw Buddy Guy there. He actually played his last chord and handed me his pick. Huh. And if if you want to talk about the blues, um, Scott, my ex-girlfriend, when we broke up, took that pick. So <laughs> that's the blues <laughs> that's, right that's there. Um, <laughs> but uh, the last waltz you guys need to check out, it's got everybody, Doc, Dr. John, Bob Dylan, uh, the, of course, the band. It's got an awesome Eric Clapton and Robbie Robertson uh, tearing up further on up the road. Um, I don't know if that's an old Freddie King song or if it's Clapton's. Um, but when you mentioned Muddy, I heard a story uh, in, an, in a Scorsese interview where he said, if you go back and watch that movie, it's the only artist where they have one angle. And it's because I guess Muddy yep. went on a little bit early and they weren't prepared. So it was like, go up, go up. And so it was like this whole thing of we're going to have Muddy on film and none of you guys are ready. So there's just that one angle. But I think I'm not, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure if Paul Butterfield's sitting in, but I know he does that excellent version he of is. Mystery He's- Train. He is sitting and he's but, playing the harp, um, supporting Muddy for sure. But you're 100 percent right about that. It's it's one of the interesting things about Muddy's performance and kind of uh, part of the synchronicity of of this whole process because that one camera out of I think seven that Scorsese was shooting all ran out of film at the same time. Um, they did have that single camera angle and the I think it was Lazlo Kovacs who was operating it. Um, did a very, very slow push in on Muddy and kind of one of those happy accidents because it's one at one angle and the song and the performance are so intense, it, it only adds to it. And and beyond that, Bob Margolin, who was his guitar player who came with him to play um, on stage with the band is, is prominently featured. Bob was part of the band that we put together um, after uh those those three blues men appeared in in my first film to go on the road which ultimately became you know this film uh, which again was my original intent was to make a modern day last waltz with these blues men and try to get all these great rock and blues stars who were inspired by them to come out and celebrate their legacies as we were talking earlier unfortunately in 2011 all three of them passed away. Um, we captured some of those live performances and live pairings that you saw in the film, but nowhere near what I had originally had hoped for. Uh, okay, yeah, I was, I had it. I'm really glad that you were using Last Waltz as a reference because I feel like, of course, that's a film. Uh, I really see it now. What you're saying with your film, where it's like it can never be done again, and especially even with some of your some of your interviews like Johnny Winter and um, and then the three main guys, uh, it's like that stuff is all gone. The stories are gone. The shows are gone. The, the uh, connection. And I, I know that that's what, was, that's what makes the last waltz so important. It's like, when do you ever get uh, Dr. John and the band and Bob Dylan? And uh, most, most of the people in that movie are still alive. So it's not really a, but when you just think of the way the music has changed, and we won't even get into agents and all that, and but uh, <laughs> we'll keep it yeah, with the good part of the sure. blues. Um, uh, yeah. 
Now, now, was there um, one thing I wanted to know, because I, I found this to be a very interesting, well-thought-out list of interview subjects. Uh, I mean, what I thought was really cool was this was, I looked at it and I thought, this is someone who has spent a lot of time with the blues and really kind of, if you don't mind me asking, was there multiple lists or how did this list kind of shape? Because I'm thinking... Joe mm-hmm. Bonamassa with Shemakia Copeland. That's the one that really has gone the rounds with the music. Yeah, I mean, again, it started out, the initial spirit of the film was to be a concert film, like The Last Waltz, with a few interviews interspersed throughout. So when I sat down to write the, the concept out, I had written a list of 100 musicians, about 100 musicians, that I wanted to reach out to to hopefully get them to come and perform with these guys, realizing, you know, it would be a tall order. It wasn't like Martin Scorsese calling up and saying, we're doing this thing, come out and perform. It was an absolute no-name filmmaker. But I did have Willie, Pinetop, and Hubert, and these great blues men that I know were revered by all these musicians. So when we set out to do the concert portion, we were able to get, um, a handful of those people on the wish list, as you see in the film, Robbie Krieger, Elvin Bishop, um, uh, Timmy Reynolds, Dave Matthews Band, and so on. But it wasn't a one-night thing, and it ended up taking quite a while to get that footage and get some of those early interviews. And then in the midst of that process, that was just unfolding very slowly, as we said, all three of them passed away in 2011. So then you know, it was a a matter of, you know, figuring out what kind of film were we going to make. And it was a real challenge. Of course, losing them personally was was difficult, but then creatively it was, what's this going to be? So basically I took that wish list of a hundred people and with the help of some contacts that I made throughout the process, um, was able to reach out to, to many of those artists and say, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on these three guys, the influence they had on your music and uh, your playing. And that's how it unfolded. And that was really the next four or five years of acquiring all the interviews that you see in the film. Um, I didn't get everyone I'd like, but I certainly got, as you pointed out, a group that's really germane to the, the legacy of Muddy and Wolf and, and people that are out there still doing it today, like Derek and Susan and, Kenny Wayne and Joe Bonamassa, you know, uh, keeping the lamp lit and uh, carrying the torch and, and, and the legacy and passing that music on, which really at the end of the day was the only thing that those three men wanted. They, you know, they, they sensed their mortality. I could, I could see that now, certainly looking at the film and thinking about it. And they asked me time and again that they just wanted to have their music passed on to the next generation and that it be kept alive beyond, you know, their lives. So that was a big part of what ultimately in, in the narrative, more narrative film that you see um, was a real goal of ours. Well, I, you know, I just want to say that you really reached that. And obviously in the review, I didn't know that was your intent. I would have uh, touched on that a little bit. Um, but this is, again, Dave Matthews Band. I've, I saw them at Bill Graham's uh, uh, the. the the Pavilion Shoreline in San Jose. God, I don't know why I'm thinking of the, uh-huh. forgetting the name of it. Shoreline Amphitheater. Um, 
But what I loved here was uh, Elvin Bishop, uh, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Um, another thing with the Doors, uh, everybody's favorite, most known Doors song, um, Break On Through, is just Shake Your Money Maker, um, which I think is an old J- Elmore James song, too, that Paul Butterfield Blues Band, just Michael Bloomfield and El- Elvin Bishop. You know, I call it crack, but I don't mean it crack, but the Paul Butterfield Blues Band to me was like what it must be to become a crackhead because when I heard them, there was like, it was really like getting itchy if you didn't hear East West or you didn't hear Born in Chicago. And it seriously got to the point where my girlfriend at the time, like she barred the Par Butterfield Blues Band, excuse me, being played. She didn't want to hear it in the car. She'd be like, you have Mm. all this time. I'm not around, but I'm done. Like you killed them for me. And I thought, Oh, so my new thing is, if I ever meet a girl, I'm like, you have to be able to listen to the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. If you can't, nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> but that's really great that you put together, uh, that that was your original intent, because it was great to see footage of Robbie Krieger. Um, of course, we lost Ray Manzarek a few years back. Um, yep. And, and of course, Densmore and Krieger will never get back on stage together. Um but this was uh, everyone. First of all, again, we'll plug if if for some reason I forgot to mention, it's opening in New York this Friday. But it in this thing I got sent, it didn't say what theater or where. So could you tell us that, Scott? Yeah, yeah, it will be at the Landmark Sunshine Theater on Houston Street in downtown New York. And uh, yeah, it opens Friday. Uh, plays four days a week at least for the first week, and you know we're optimistic that we'll get enough uh, interest in the film that they'll extend it beyond that. Oh, that's fantastic. Cause it's this stuff really, what's very interesting, this film, when I, I had, I had heard about it being made and then forgot about it just because of the content we're inundated with. And so when it came across my email, I thought, how did I possibly forget about this? It's actually, I don't mind. I've said it on air before I have a brain injury. So sometimes I'll forget stuff. And Hmm. when it comes to stuff like this, I'm like, you know, why couldn't I have forgot this movie? (laughs) Like uh, I was tracking this for a while. I heard about this. I was just, to tell you the truth, I thought I had missed it. I thought that it came and went and I thought, great. It's, it might be uh, no offense. I thought, you know, I know what people do with great films like this. How, when people go, Martin Scorsese made the last waltz. It's like, okay, if you're going to flip out over Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and be a Scorsese historian and not know he made The Last Waltz, <laughs> then, yeah. and that sounds so arrogant, but I'm not being arrogant. So um, so basically, okay, so you get the you get to New York, and then on the 25th, uh, where will you be premiering in Los Angeles? We open in L.A. at the, the Lemley NoHo 7, which is in North Hollywood. Um um, I'm a New Yorker, so I, I don't have a terrific grasp of the geography of L.A. I know it's oh, okay. Well, North Hollywood. Gonna, okay, yeah, because I was gonna I was gonna mention that to listeners because there is uh, seven different Lemleys. There's a there's a Lemley yeah. down in Beverly Hills. There's one in Santa Monica. Uh, the NoHo one, of course, as you guys know, is up over the hill, uh, out towards uh, San Fernando. Um, so make sure you don't go down to Wilshire. Make sure you don't go out to Santa Monica. It's going to be at the Lemley NoHo 
I believe it's called the NoHo 7, but I think they're all 7. So yeah. I think they, some of them dropped that. Um, so you guys want to check that out again. So many things start at the Santa Monica one. Do not go to Santa Monica. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting geography because everything's just on one side of the hill or the other. So you right. kind of, you know, right. I've had to call them up and be like, but wait, I have, I have two guests with films premiering at the same time at your, and there, and that's how I found out they have so many of them. Cause I was like, I can't be in two theaters at once. Um, so do you have, um, I guess one of my, two of my questions that we've been formatting for guests, uh, cause this, this kind of seems like you've, you will continue uh, to do, because you have a lot of uh, spirit behind you with this, and you have a lot of great people behind you, um, and yourself even putting this together, I admire, and the show admires. So the Thank next you. two questions are, oh, you're very welcome. This is, I sent just the uh, announcement to my music teacher, just saying thank you, because... I can understand all this because of you. And he was wanted me to say thank you also because he was, he's constantly, Oh, if you get him going, how people don't carry the music on. It's like, I call him like the Malcolm X of, you know, he's, he's not a music snob at all, but it just turns into the, you know, epic speech of why, Oh, the kids don't listen. And the, the, but anyways, um, so, uh, um, first question is, has a filmmaker, you get to do any genre you want. Script's great. You have the budget. You have the people you want. What's your dream genre to do? Uh, it is a good question, and it's a difficult one right now because this film has taken so much time and energy that you know a lot of people are asking me what my next project is, and I have so many um, bits of unfinished things that I'd like to get back to. Um, but I do love working with actors, so I would love to get back to a narrative feature film. Um, I do love history, so perhaps uh, one based on a historical subject that I'm passionate about. And then, you know, as difficult as this film was as a, as a documentary, um, and it is my first documentary as well, I would really love to find another subject, I don't know if I ever could, that I'm as passionate about it as this music and, and its impact on rock and roll, but I'd love to find another subject uh, that I care about and, and spend some time perhaps on, on another doc. Okay. Well, yeah. And it's really, uh, you know, what you found or what you came up with was so great. I'm going to be ordering my copy when it comes out. Um, this is one of those where I have about 20 or 30, concert docs or blues docs or whatever, all those Clapton Crossroads festivals. And uh, sure. this, this film gave me a really good chance to, uh, I, I, I can't, I don't like when people say I knew this stuff, but it's kind of one of those things where it made me go back to my CD collection, go back to that box I have in my closet. And now that it's so hard to find CD players, I of course have everything on CD um, but what mm-hmm. I was going to say was, was it also gave me this great kind of hour that I spent flipping through all these CDs and and remembering what I have and what I would listen to all the time and how we both know and people out there listening uh, know that the coolest thing about a song is how, you know, one beat can take you right back to that show or right oh, back yeah. to that emotion. And I think that's, I think that's 
with every music, but I find it most prevalent uh, with the blues. And when I looked at some of these, it just made me think of, oh, yeah, I remember what I was doing before that show, or I, <laughs> I remember uh, where I saw where that show was and what was going on in my life. And, and that's what I liked the most about uh, your film. Uh, the second question would be, we like to know with filmmakers, artists, uh, you got to pay the rent, you're out of money, you haven't eaten in a week, but there's someone comes to you with a movie and there's just no way you're going to do it. You just could never make that genre. Do you, what, what's the question? Do you take it? You know, how do you, no, no. What's do you one take you, what's project? A, no, no. What's one oh. you would never take? Doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter. Lights are off. You have to pay the rent. You're you're just you're oh, not going to direct it. I see. I don't. That's a good question. I you know I I don't know that there's something. You know, it's hard to tell because I I'm also a writer and I feel like you know if something resonates with me and I have the ability to kind of put my stamp on it. You know, I'm kind of I try to be open to everything. I'm a drummer. So I have to be open to uh, a lot of other musicians and uh, their tastes and styles. So I try to be open. I don't know if there's something that I would absolutely say no to um, if I thought that I could, you know, bring something to it. But uh, hard to say. You know, I definitely am not um, as as steeped in the horror genre as, uh, you know, a lot of my friends are. That that might be difficult for me, but I do love. I mean, The Shining to me is one of my favorite films of all time. I'd love to do a, you know, a really dramatic, you know, horror film on that on that order. That's you know, an incredible uh, achievement. Um, you, so well, you are listening to too much blues. You're saying you love a movie about a guy wanting to kill his <laughs> girlfriend. Well, you're really into the blues. <laughs> sitting in front of my yeah, sitting in front of my typewriter endlessly writing and trying to figure this movie out. Yeah. I guess I, I could relate to, to Jack there. <laughs> that is uh I saw that on the big screen and at the end of the movie I was holding my girlfriend's arm and she said, You're I'm you're supposed I'm supposed to be holding your arm. So, I don't know, that was scary. <laughs> yeah. That was a little too much oh, on the big that. screen. Um so that so my last question would be uh, of course, we try to avoid cl- cliche questions, but these always have to come up. Uh, do you have any specific uh, influences that uh, keep you going? That your films, their films, are always with you, or your, you know, whenever you move, you keep those films. Or yeah, you know, I, I was not a film school kid, so I don't have the real, you know, esoteric. Uh, you know, French New Wave directors or whatnot that I that I'd cite chapter and verse. You know, I grew up in the the 70s and early 80s and was really um, taken by Scorsese and Coppola. I mean, the music docs, of course, of of, of Scorsese, um, the Apocalypse Now uh, of Coppola. Um, even the even the smaller Coppola films were really hitting when I was kind of coming of age, becoming a teenager, like Rumblefish that, you know, really um, blew me away. And uh, I just think that the diversity that he, uh, he showed, you know, doing a, a small canvas film like that or The Outsiders, that really had an impact. Oh, that's such a great movie. Kid. Right. So, you know, those were my touchstones uh, and probably 
in those formative years when you're just figuring out what you want to do, um, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I, you know, I never thought it possible that I'd be a filmmaker, but, but those films meant so much and still mean so much to me. So if I had to, you know, cite, you know, some pretty seminal influences, it would definitely be Scorsese and Coppola. Well, you're very lucky. Uh, what the the age you are? Because I was born in '79, and so I have a very backwards. I call it the. I don't know where I would be if I didn't have an older brother. Because it's like I saw Risky Business when I was like five years old, <laughs> and like yeah. I the show is uncensored. I'm not being crude here, but we're talking about the blues, and it's like when Rebecca De Mornay like you know does that thing with the window blowing. I couldn't understand why that was so interesting. And it was like, you're not supposed to at age five. And my brother would just constantly show me Revenge of the Nerds and Porky's and all these just audacious films that I would never show my five-year-old nephew. And so, and then I had a father who is a filmmaker and he would, he was very liberal if the movie had a purpose. So it's like, he took me to see Born on the Fourth of July because he's a Vietnam veteran. So he would be like, don't spit on veteran, don't burn the flag, this. And it was like, sure. so I could only see something if it had a purpose. So I have these weird, I'm kind of influences where I'm just, I've had people say, well, how the hell did you even see that? Like, you know, those people who get a little bit more on the conservative side and your parents let you watch that? Well, my dad was a Vietnam veteran. Oh, Okay. So I go back and watch sure. it now, and I'm just like, yeah, how, what was I thinking as a 10-year-old? There was, there's some scenes in there that aren't really <laughs> a 10-year-old. Um, but, yeah, so Rumblefish, thank you for mentioning that. Some, so many films, like The Blues, of course, as you know, um, we like to have certain episodes where we talk about films that are people for, are forgetting. Outsiders, I mean, gosh, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, oh, yeah. uh, to me, that's Ralph Macchio's best, as much as we all love Karate Kid and the symbol at the end when he kicks Johnny, and we all love that he gets to date Allie. Um, that, I think that's his best performance. That, that, that line is so amazing when he's like, I've never gotten to do anything. I'm 16. Oh, yeah. You know, and it yeah. just has, I think, as an adult now, you look back and you just go, God, I, I, didn't, I never really sat down and said, I was so thankful to be 22. I was so thankful to be 28. I got to have a 30th birthday. So I thought that was, uh, yeah. I'm glad that you brought up Coppola because he's always overshadowed himself by the Godfather films. And now sure, we have Sophia yeah, Coppola. Yeah. That, that diversity in, in his, in his filmography, I think is incredible. So um, yeah, that, that, that inspires me, you know? So that's why I said earlier, I, I'm, open to anything. I mean, if you show somebody the Godfather and show them the outsiders or Rumblefish, it, you know, could be hard to reconcile. It's the same filmmaker, but you know, he uh, went where great story is. And to me that that's the most important thing. Yeah. And also uh, that leads to another actor who I don't, you know, crash it. I took till crash to give him an Oscar nomination. And, and we know it's not all about awards, but uh, Matt Dillon is just so amazing mm-hmm. in those early couple of oh, films. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Gus Van Sant's uh, Drugstore Cowboy, which people always look at me funny when I say I'm trying to find it because they're just like, why do you want to find some film about people ripping off a pharmacy for drugs? 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, because <laughs> Gus Van Sant makes good films. It's not because I want to go down to Walgreens. It's just because Heather Graham, I think it was her first film, and uh, Matt Dillon is amazing. So guy, a guy that kind of ruled the '80s, and then it's kind of like, why, why did they have to put him off till Crash? So, uh, yeah, but yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and rolling with that little thing that happened. And we, uh, oh, yeah, we hope you have a fantastic uh, premiere. Again, let's plug that one more time. This Friday, August 18th in New York at the Landmark Sunshine Theater on Houston Street. Okay, Landmark Sunshine Houston. And then next Friday, a week from this Friday, August 25th at the Lemley NoHo 7. Again, everyone, not the Lemley on Wilshire or Santa Monica, the Lemley NoHo and that's cool because actually we have some – one of our reporters lives in NoHo, so uh, maybe we can go get her to check it out and give a review of seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, okay, it'd be great. So, we're going to have some uh, – we're going to have some special guests joining us for the Q&A. Uh, we're lining up uh, several of the musicians that are in the movie to come out each day of that opening weekend to join me. So uh, that would be terrific. Interesting. I, you know, knowing my luck, it's going to be Joe Perry because I don't, I don't have a driver's license. I'm an epileptic and I had a blackout and they took my license, but no, the, I, that is very awesome. That's a cool thing of you, of you to do. Uh, we will make sure we mention that on, uh, on our social media and let people know. Um, and then just for your radar, there's a movie called the Paul, Butter. you've probably heard about it. The Paul Butterfield blues story. And sure. uh, they're playing the they're playing the festival circuit right now, but they did the same thing with each screening. They brought someone out from the Electric Flag. Uh, I remember I was talking with Barry Goldberg. I said, "Oh, I'm such a big Michael Bloomfield fan. I love the Electric Flag, and I love the way you guys did Talon Wolf's Killing Floor." And and he literally just looked at me and said, "How old are you?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, what? I mean, just because I'm not." doesn't mean I can't listen to the electric flag like you know yeah. I'm like okay I get it I'm like but I know I know the Butterfield Blues Band stuff I go come on man and, and he just kind of laughed but so yeah thank you for what you're doing uh, for music the blues for the spirit that it gives life and again everyone make sure for the so only in Los Angeles there'll be musical guests uh, yeah, actually, in New York, uh, we're going to have some of the producers. And as you saw in the film, okay. there's some animation. We're going to have the animator uh, come out and speak. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, because we love to make sure that people come out and also support support the filmmakers uh, as well as the subject. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for your time. And you have a great day and, and best wishes for these two premieres. Thanks, and man. Run. Really appreciate it. Thank oh, you. you're very welcome. Bye. Take care. That was great talking with Scott Birnbaum, director of Sidemen Road to Glory. I could go on for another 20 minutes here talking about the blues, Pine Top, Hubert Sumlin, Joe Bonamassa, Willie Big Eyes. You got You guys got to check out this film. Joe Perry, Bonnie Raitt, Kenny Wayne Shepard. Saw him open a couple of times for BB. Saw Joe Bonamassa open for BB. Uh, there's a great bookend of this that I will share here. The reason why this was so special to me was the In the Light of the Blues, the first woman I ever loved, 
The first concert we saw was B.B. King, and the last concert we saw was Derek Trucks. And so all these concerts in here were with this woman. So I'm not going to dedicate a show to her because in light of the blues, it's just part of it. It's the deal, and it's everything. So thank you so much, Scott, and everyone that contributed this film, and, of course, the musicians who we all love and listen to or should be. Take care and aloha.